Amen and amen. Yes, we do bring an offering to our God who rules and reigns on high, not only with the physical blessings that we've been given by Him, blessed by Him with, not only with our songs, but also we offer our hearts to Him in, in our scripture today and receiving the Word. And so if you would join with me in reading the Word of God, which we found in 1 John chapter 5, verses 13-17 through 17 this morning. You could either follow with me in your Bibles or look ahead on those screens. Church, this is the Word of God. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Amen. Thank you, Ed. Well, there's no doubt that we live in very uncertain times, a very uncertain world. It's hard to be sure about anything. Like the situation that unfolded when a guy wanted to send flowers to a friend of his to congratulate him on the opening of a new location for his business. The flowers arrived at the new business site and the owner read the card, Rest in Peace. The owner was angry and called the florist to complain. And after he had told the florist of the obvious mistake and how angry he was, the florist simply replied, Sir, I'm very, very sorry for the mistake. But rather than getting angry, you should imagine this. Somewhere, today, there's a funeral taking place. And they have flowers with a note saying, Congratulations on your new location. (laughs) Well, there are some things that you just can't count on. There are many things we just don't know. There are no guarantees. People make mistakes. There's very little in life that we can depend on, right? You know this to be true in every area of our lives. Health, right? Just can so quickly go suddenly sideways. A visit to a doctor. Marg's mom just, what, 10 days ago or so had a fall, required surgery. That was last Sunday. Is recovering from that. Minoja's dad had, uh, for two weeks, chest pain and was going to work and going about his daily routine until he couldn't bear it anymore and thought, there's something wrong, I better go to the hospital. The hospital immediately they admitted him and just this past Wednesday had quadruple, right? Bypass surgery. Very sudden. Accidents, right? Never planned for them. Suddenly a car goes through a red light, a stop sign, a yield sign. Jobs. That sickening feeling when your boss calls you in and say, we have to let you go, we're downsizing, we're reorganizing. Relationships are full of broken trust and betrayal. Or natural disasters that come upon us, often without warning. Local events. A couple of workers go to work Friday morning, expect to come home to their families and don't. 
the world events that are taking place before us, even as we speak this morning, the crisis in Ukraine, the world is full of uncertainty. And it's often these uncertainties, if you think about it, that cause us to buy insurance, right? Health insurance or life insurance or uh, home and auto insurance, disability insurance. And recently I've heard a lot of ads for identity theft insurance. I think I need to get that. Twice in the last six months, my credit card's been compromised. I get a phone call one Saturday morning just a couple weeks ago. Um, My credit card was being used in Quebec. And where was I? (laughs) And uh, what a pain. But it happens. That's the environment we live in. We've been studying the Apostle John's letter to Christians in the first century. And we've entitled this series, Transforming Love. We're getting near the end, but not at the end yet. And we've been discovering in this series that there are parallels between life in the first century and life in the 21st. There are some people uh, that were in some of the churches that John was writing to, and they, you know, in a sense, they started to wonder if there were things that they could be certain about. And that caused much confusion and conflict within some of these churches. And the Apostle John was very certain about a number of things, and he had good reason to be. Remember that this is the John that had first-hand knowledge and experience from the three years that he spent as one of Jesus' twelve disciples. And John was part of the group of three disciples that Jesus had kept particularly close to himself. So there was no need to ever convince John that he could be certain about a number of things. In this letter, it seems sort of ends in verse 12 where we ended last week and these next verses 13 to 21 to the end of chapter 5 are kind of like the the PS of a letter. It's like John just couldn't finish or wrap up his letter without kind of reminding them again of a few important things. And, And what we find here actually not just random thoughts. We're going to look at two certainties this morning and then Next week, Pastor Ken will continue bringing us to the end of the chapter. The first thing, though, that we can absolutely be sure about, the thing that we can know is this. We can know eternal life. We can know eternal life. John makes it very clear that his purpose in writing the letter was, quote, so that you may know that you have eternal life. We already know that eternal life is a gift. It's it's not a prize. It's not something that we earn. In verse 11, uh, John wrote, "And this is what John, sorry, and this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. And so God gave a gift to us." And it's not a gift that we have to earn or, or, or somehow win. It's, it's, it's something that we receive. It's a gift because of God's love and grace. Now, it might be helpful for us to compare his purpose in writing this letter that we've been studying and his purpose, uh, to, comparing it to his purpose in writing his gospel. In John chapter 20, verse 31, John wrote, But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you will have life by the power of His name. You see, it appears that John's purpose in his gospel was to introduce Jesus uh, to these people and then have people come to faith in Him. In other words, to be saved. And then in his letter... His purpose is to write to those that have already come to faith in Jesus to give them assurance of their eternal life. In other words, to know without, a, without any doubt 
that they are saved. And this is something that we can be sure about. You see, there's no doubt that to have this assurance, to know this with certainty, means to have hope and to have peace and to have joy. I mean, sometimes when we're having communion, and it kind of happened this morning too, and we're singing along, and I just couldn't help but smile a little bit. Right? We often approach communion as, this is a somber time, we're reflecting on Christ's death. Yeah, absolutely. But I smile when I know that Jesus died for me. Uh, to know that He loves me, to, to know that I'm His child, to know that there's nothing that will ever change that. And if you know that, then we know peace and joy and hope. And we have it now. It's a present reality. It's not just something we look forward to in the future. Uh, you probably have seen this before, and it just came to my mind when I was thinking about these thoughts. And it's just this little phrase, right? No God means no peace. But to know God, you know peace. I had a friend of mine, I remember, uh, this is many years ago, back to when I was uh, serving at a church in Calgary, and he had a, a couple of guys come to his door that wanted to convince him that uh, their faith was the true faith. And uh, they got into a conversation, he invited them in, and they got into a conversation, and the conversation went to the place where they're talking about heaven and about eternal life. And, uh, and so my friend Tim, in having this conversation, he says to them, he says, well, do you know that you have eternal life? Are you sure about that? And they said, well, no, nobody can be sure about that. Because from their framework, it was something to be earned. They would never really know if they had done enough things until they got there. So they were going to try really hard now. And so my friend Tim just looks at him and goes, so you mean to tell me that you don't know with absolute certainty that you have eternal life? And they're just looking at him. No. He goes, how depressing. And I remember him telling me that story, and it's always stuck with me. Because that's just it, isn't it? Wouldn't it be kind of depressing to, to not have assurance, to not have that hope, to know with absolute certainty what your eternal destiny is going to be? But to think, oh, it all depends on what I do here and now and how hard I work and the things, the hoops I jump through, that is pretty depressing. We can know that we have eternal life. And it starts with believing. John puts it this way, you who believe in the name of the Son of God. And we see this phrase in many different places in the same, uh, maybe slightly different words, but believing in Jesus is what it comes down to. And it's not just, you know, nodding your head in agreement, yes, I believe in Jesus. But as Pastor Ken clear, out, outlined so clearly for us last week, he put it this way, believing is this, a follower of Christ is one who trusts in, relies on, and is committed to Christ himself. It's a great way for us to just see the expanse of what it means to believe in Jesus. It's not just an acceptance of an idea. It's a complete commitment of our lives to Jesus. And either we're all in or we're not.
Because when you're all in, suddenly everything changes. You see, too often people will say things like, well, I raised my hand at camp once, or I talked to a counselor, or I I walked to the front of church one time when there was an invitation given. But the problem is that, that... what follows is there is never any life change. There's never any evidence that, that we're actually following Jesus. Because if we're truly following Jesus, our lives then begin to reflect His more and more. Uh, you may have heard this one before too. And I believe it was Keith Green. He was a, a, a Christian musician who said this. And then everyone else has used it maybe put their twist on it in some ways. But he said this, Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Right? It's pretty clear. You don't just start going to church and, oh, I'm a Christian. No. Because it is based on what we know. We go through this and we know that God loves us. We know that that God sent His Son Jesus to die for His sins. We reflected on that already this morning. We know that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. And when we believe in Jesus, we are saved, we become God's children, and we have eternal life. We can know eternal life. And it comes down to simply this. What have we done with God's Son Jesus? Do we believe in the name of the Son of God and commit ourselves wholeheartedly to Him? But there's another thing that we can be absolutely sure about. We can know answered prayer. Uh, You see, prayer is one of those disciplines of the Christian life that sometimes seems mysterious and raises lots of questions for us. Right? What, what, what is prayer? Does, does prayer really change things? Or does, does prayer just change the person praying? How should we pray? Or what should we pray for? What, uh, can we know that God hears us? Can we be certain that He will answer? And, and volumes and books have been written on this, and so there's no way that we can sort of touch on the expanse subject of prayer in this. But I think in these verses, there's some answers to some of these questions already. If you have your Bibles open, look at verse 14 now. This is the confidence, John writes, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Okay? So let's just look simply at, at how prayer works. First of all, we can just say this, we talk, or we ask. And this certainty that we have here follows really from the first, because If we are his children, because we're in a relationship with God, we can talk to him with total confidence. We can even be bold about it. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Romans in chapter 8 and verse 15, put it this way. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own son or as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. In other words, we we don't have to approach God and kind of cower in fear as a slave might to his master. Instead, we just go to God and say, Daddy, Abba, Father, Daddy. Right? (coughs) Excuse me. That's the kind of relationship that we can have with God the Father. And who can't go and ask his daddy just about anything. 
Another verse that speaks to the confidence we can have in prayer is Hebrews 4.16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. With confidence. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Or as Eugene Peterson writes in the message, So let's walk right up to Him and get what He is so ready to give. Take the mercy. Accept the help. And so... We approach God probably as we should, respectfully and on in reverence, but our conversation can be bold, it can be open, it can be relaxed, right? This is a conversation between a father and his child, a dad and his son, a dad and his daughter. We should notice, too, just how all-encompassing our asking can be. Because John says, we ask anything. Anything. There's nothing a child cannot ask of his father. Uh, Now, lots of misunderstanding around this. And before we think that this is just a big blank check, right? Oh, God, help me win the lottery. Oh, God, you know, help me find that perfect girl. Oh, God, help that perfect girl win the lottery. I mean, whatever it might be, right? We just, it's not just carte blanche. Just ask him, like, well, we'll explain it because we need to notice a very important qualification. He says, we ask anything. But here's the qualification. You know what's coming, don't you? According to his, what? Louder. Will. According to his will. Now, you know, we've heard this before, right? A year ago, we did a series on the Lord's Prayer and Probably many of us know that from memory. But think about it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Right? And so isn't this really the tension that we wrestle with when it comes to prayer? Right? On one one hand, we, we can ask for anything. 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 Yet, it has to align with God's will. I have often struggled with those that say, you know, well, you just name it and you claim it. And in fact, that thinking or that understanding just, it bothers me. It bothers me a lot, actually. Because I've seen some significant abuses of it. But what I think we can say is that there's absolutely nothing wrong with expressing what we want. Okay? What our desires are, frankly, even what our will is... (laughs) But, and you probably expected that, you knew that was coming. We always qualify it with, if it is your will. And then we have to leave it at that. Uh, We don't go on to try to convince God that somehow my will and what I know is better than his will and what he knows. Uh, One writer in writing about this put it this way. He says, prayer consists not in bringing God's will down to us, but in lifting our will up to His. It's a good simple word picture, right? We, we, we submit our will to God. Because we're in a relationship with the Father through the Son. This oneness develops. It's a profound intimacy that can be the result of this. And I mean, there's so many verses that talk about remaining in God and abiding in Jesus. And when we do that, the 
prayer really just becomes a, a unifying of our wills. And I think this lines up best with what Jesus taught on prayer. He said, right, your kingdom come, your will be done. We know that that's how he taught his disciples to pray. But they also probably seen experiences or, or, or witnessed how he prayed that way. Now, whether the I know the disciples fell asleep at this point, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, there was... Well, let me read it for you. Because three of the four Gospels record this event. But it was helpful for me to read this again and just go, ah, I kind of missed that the first time, or the 18th time. They went to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James, and John, the writer of this Gospel, or this letter with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. I mean, he's being honest about what a struggle this was. So he, Jesus, went on a little farther and fell to the ground. He prayed that, if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Did you catch that? He prayed that if it was possible in some way that he would not have to die, that it might pass him by, that he could skip that. And then he says, this is his prayer, Abba, Father, he cried out. Jesus, calling his father, Daddy. Everything is possible for you. Please, he says, take this cup of suffering away from me. Take it away. I don't want to do this. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. And if you read through the different Gospels, you realize that he then prayed that. He went, found his disciples asleep and woke them up, went back, and he prayed the same thing. And he did that three times. May your will be done. And I've had conversation with those that believe that you just kind of name it and claim it and you'll get whatever you ask. And they would say, no word of a lie, because I've heard it from people that believe this. That was Jesus' first mistake, praying three times. If he had faith, he would have only prayed once. It's like, duh, it's there in the Scriptures. It, it's recording what Jesus did. He's the Son of God. You'd think he would know how to pray. God had a plan. God had a will. And Jesus was honest enough to pray, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go through with this. This is gut-wrenching. But it's the most important thing in my life is that your will be done, not mine. So we can talk boldly, honestly, candidly, with confidence, knowing secondly, and this is the other part of prayer, is that God listens. God listens. That's the short phrase right at the end of verse 14. He hears us. What a promise. <laughs> we talk, and God hears. In verse 15, and if we know that He hears us, again He says whatever we ask, 
we know that we have what we asked of Him. Present tense. Did we already get it? You see, for God to listen is to answer. So we say, we ask God? He's like, yes. He heard you. He's listening. And though the results may not be immediately obvious, it never calls into question the immediacy of his response because John writes that we know that we have, present tense, what we have asked of him. In other words, now. Now this word hears, you know, we just think of it, well, did he just hear us? Is that it? It, There's more to it. It really conveys some important thoughts about prayer because it really means things like attentive listening or listening favorably or to understand. In other words, God doesn't simply hear us, but he understands and he responds. But this is the hardest part for us then, is we also have to listen. Because we want to listen for His will, not ours. Prayer is providing simply a way for us to align our wills with God's purposes. It's not to gratify our selfish desires. And so prayer not only is for us, but really, and I think John goes on to talk about this in saying, we, we should pray for others as well. You might even argue that this might be the most important part of prayer, interceding before God on behalf of others. And verses 16 and 17, I'm not going to kid you, they have baffled interpreters and teachers for centuries. And my time's gone this morning, so I just can't do it justice. Seriously, it is. But let me just try to say a couple of things quickly. There's a couple of things that I want to take from this. One is, there's instruction here for us to learn how to deal with sin. Let me just read the verses quickly, verses 16 and 17. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. See what I mean? It's, it's confusing. Some hard sayings. Especially the sentence, there is a sin that leads to death. And every interpreter you read is just going, so what is he talking about? There's several theories about what John is referring to. And, you know, if I had the time, we could go through all of them. But here's the deal. At the end of the day, we don't know for sure. We really don't. And it does seem, though, that John readers, they would have known exactly what he was referring to. Like it was somehow common knowledge what this sin that leads to death was. But one simple thing that I think we can take from this verse is this. That when we know of someone else's sin, we shouldn't go and talk to others about it. We should go to God and talk to Him about it. Also, 
this verse should raise our awareness really of how serious sin is and how it impacts negatively on our relationship with God. You see, God's will is for us not to sin. We've seen that in, in, uh, in this letter already. So if I want my will to line up with God's will, then I need to very quickly acknowledge my sin and accept God's forgiveness. And that too, John has written about in the early parts of uh, latter part of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2. And just one last comment about this. We might be able to understand what he's talking about here in view of this context. John has been writing about eternal life and that life is to be lived now. And so maybe he's actually talking about unbelief being the sin. Because really that would ultimately lead to death. Because a person who has a hardened resistance to the truth of God that is revealed in Jesus is rejecting the only way that sins can be forgiven. And in doing that, misses out on eternal life with Jesus. Like I said, we don't know all of what John was exactly getting at there. But we do know this. And there's no doubt about this. That you can know eternal life. And that you can know answered prayer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truths that are contained in it. Lord, my prayer is for my brothers and sisters here this morning. That we would just have that assurance that we would just be so certain there'd be no lingering doubt or questions about our relationship with you, about our eternal destiny. And if we do have questions about that, Lord, that we wouldn't just sort of push them to the periphery of our thinking, but that we would deal with it. We'd work this through and we'd ask questions and we'd seek your help in coming to the conclusion that helps us ultimately put our belief in Jesus and commit our lives to him, living in relationship with him so that we can have this conversational relationship where we ask and we know that you listen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.